Welcome to the Rabbit Trail podcast. This is a podcast we have been working on and planning on doing for a little while now, hoping to launch here with our Exodus series. But considering that we have a bunch of questions that were asked and we have not yet finished, we're going to get into those. Uh, for those of you who just picked this up, my name is Greg Harris. I'm senior pastor at Olive Branch, and my guest host is Brent Branchide. Yeah. Woo. What do you do for everybody, Brent? Um, I'm the Connections Pastor, kind of the member care, new believer um, pastor, and so that's kind of what I do, wear a lot of hats. and Yeah. Boom. So this podcast is going to be aimed at one thing, and that is really kind of, as I'm putting it, travel down interesting paths to help you understand the Bible and your faith a little better, and those paths are the ones that we couldn't get on in the sermons. A lot of times I have to drop stuff and, you know, don't get to say it, or you do if you're doing it, I tell you to chop stuff out, or whatever. It's a place we can pick some of those back up. So, and it is, and it is a good place too, where you know, um, people that go to Olive Branch, you know, if you're ever listening to a sermon and think, "Ooh, I would like to ask him a question about that," because you know, it's hard to raise your hand and be called upon during a service. It's well, a great opportunity to just email those questions in, and we can use this forum as well to answer the questions. No, so I'm the question and answers. I'm imagining people like literally raising their hands yes. during the service. Thanks I have wanted to do that. There's many times I sit there and just go, I wish he had like an earpiece and I could just speak to him right now on stage. <laughs> thing is, people raise their hands and say, amen, brother. And just keep moving. <laughs> I see that hand. God bless you. So we've got about how many questions? I think we've got about nine or 10, maybe 11 questions. Um, some of them are multiple parts or, and people have asked. And so, um, yeah, how do, we, how do we want to do this? Um, I will just start reading some of the questions to you. Um, like you said, you, uh, you said that you would answer the questions if people asked them. So some of them might be just one or two word answers and we can move on. Some of them might uh, require a little more uh, discussion. So we'll spend some time on those. But one of the first ones I got, it says, why did the Romans torture Jesus? I like this one because it was like a little kid drew the drawing. It was. And I have pictures of yeah. the animation. But now some adults like, no, I drew those pictures. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the answer to that is basically Romans would crucify and torture anybody who is kind of like a rebel. We call them insurrectionists, somebody who's going to try to take over either a section or a kingdom in Rome. And so, hey, if you were uh, caught doing that, like they thought you were a rabble rouser, somebody who's like a starting a, a fake another army, yeah, you got crucified. And so they tortured their uh, their people by crucifixion to scare off anybody else who'd be willing to step up and try to be a um, kind of a, a new leader of a rebellion. Kind of like the mafia worked back in New York in the days. You know, they they tortured people, made things public to send a message to everybody else not to do this yeah so, so. yeah rome and mafia they come from the same place so. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right i wonder where they got that idea um all right so how do you think preaching helps with outreach oh well, i think there's a lot of people who feel like preaching should only be discipleship but it's both right you got to disciple people that do outreach and you got to disciple people who've been outreached and so i really think preaching can help in outreach in a couple of ways first and foremost uh, just the word of God's powerful to change lives, right? I mean, you and I have seen it. The Hebrew says the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It kind of cuts down to the bone and, marrow, bone and marrow and just it gets to motives of people. And I think that the power of, of any sermon from any place leads back to the gospel. 
And so that means that it is outreach in some ways. Jesus preached as he went around and outreach. So second, I think it's a great place people can invite friends to if they don't feel comfortable giving the gospel out completely yet. I think I still think people do better one-on-one than in a crowd, but uh, I think that's the case. I also think that um, it's a great place to inspire people and help educate them about outreach. Um, I don't think you do a lot of education from the pulpit about outreach because it's kind of awkward. I invited my friend and you're telling us how to reach people. Um, but I think it's definitely something to remind us that it's that's part of the com- Great Commission, right? That's the, that is the Great Commission, and we need to get out there and get the gospel. So any way that preaching can motivate people to obey Christ in outreach is critical too. So, and I mean, you know, I mean, before the advent of of uh, the internet and and all that stuff, you know, generally preaching was just done to the insiders, right? Or unless you invited somebody um, to the church. Not right? necessarily. I think that there was a you got a lot of pastors who took on the revivalist kind of concept in the United States. You have Mooney, uh, Moody, sorry, Moody was a uh, major, major evangelist in his church, and his church was gigantic up in Chicago. Uh, you had, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of the early Methodists would go across the United States, entering churches and doing evangelistic messages on Sundays. It really didn't turn into like the every Sunday evangelism Sunday until around, you know, the, the 70s, 80s, and some of that was because the culture had changed so much that a lot of people felt like we have to reach uh, the Christian who thinks they're a Christian and they're at the church. And so it's very different than like missionary stuff where we have to get out there and and figure out how to get to know people who aren't like us. So, yeah, so that's still kind of a hybrid. We're moving out of that. Okay. Uh, Another question here. Why don't we celebrate Palm Sunday with palms? Yeah. Um, well, we have. I mean, we don't pass them out. So if that's what they're asking, I don't know. Uh, we've, we've had palms before. We've hung palms up. We've, But I always wonder why we don't call it Coat Sunday, too, because, you know, <laughs> it wow. says in, in Matthew 21, 8, that they threw their coats on the ground and then they threw palms as well. So but it, it doesn't really matter. I think that's just fun tradition. And sometimes we do it and sometimes we don't. It's been a while, but that's oftentimes up to the planning team do you think there's anything spiritual about it no okay. i think it's um, just tradition and on good friday uh have you ever thought of teaching the stations of the cross we have taught the stations of the cross multiple times at one point we got so caught into the stations we did it like three years in a row and i think that's when we kind of went we need a break and then we haven't quite gotten back to it yet and we do the protestant station of the cross because there are Catholic ones, and they're different. And so just remembering that. And so, yeah, we'll probably get back to that sooner or later. Okay. What do you think is the advantage of doing the Stations of the Cross? I just think it's a it's a great m- memory tool to help people remember all the stops that Jesus was making as he was on his way to his crucifixion. Uh, and there's a kind of an, a sense of intention there. So it feels a little bit like kind of, Christmassy, it gives a little tradition to Good Friday and to Easter. So, um, how do you talk to an atheist about? And I think this says our why. How do you talk to an atheist about our why? So that's a broad 
our why I thought was interesting because I think what they're trying to say is, you know, about our why of the gospel, right? Like, how do you talk to an atheist who doesn't believe in God about why they should believe in God and why they should want to go to heaven? And um, my my conversations with atheists, and you can jump in here because you've had plenty of them too. I mean, I think your dad proclaimed he was an atheist for a long time, right? Yeah. And uh, I always found it was easier to first find common ground to where you both agree with something, right? So maybe it's human rights or maybe it's that hey, we both agree that people shouldn't be mean or whatever. And and so I always, if you can find that place of agreement, you can go one of two directions, right? On one side, you can go into like, okay, well, if you, if you believe in human rights, like then you obviously believe that even if, you know, that everybody then has the same value, right? But how do we know that, right? You, you kind of start getting at their why first. Like, why do you think there's human rights? And this is a move that's made by a book called, um, oh, it's Frank Turek's book, uh, Not Enough Faith to Be an Atheist or something Mm -hmm. like that. And his whole point there is they constantly are stealing Christian truths and acting like they're just obvious. When if you study history, they're not obvious. And they were clearly created through the church and the teachings of Jesus. So I always go, like, find, find the common ground. That's what I like to do. Then... Start asking some good questions, like poke at it, look at it, and then um, explain why your position or find a, a linked view, something that matches that and go like, well, why would you accept this but not that? So you agree that we shouldn't, you know, you don't kill people, but you're okay with suicide. So like, why, why would you, why would you do that? Like, what's the difference? And then kind of dig into that. And that helps get to the why, because I think ultimately then they start to see that they're standing around with their own faith. And now you can start going, look, I think we need to have a conversation about God. I think that um, you, we need to talk about, you know, the reality of what, what I believe you need. And then hopefully you've shown them that you can converse well enough that they're willing to listen. Now, I mean, you know, you read a lot more than I do about stuff like that. But, you know, like... I know that there's that Christian argument, you know, when it comes to, you know, okay, if there's human rights, who's the rights giver, you know, right, that right, type right. of stuff. What is the atheist position on that? You know, the, there is no rights giver, but we have human rights. What, I mean. There's not really an atheist position on it now. I mean, it used to be that it was kind of like, well, it's inevitable. We're all humans. So we all might as well treat each other like humans. We're all, you know, Americans free, you know, kind of thing. And then abortion comes along and you kind of have to make it, well, not those humans or, um, you know, like people with Down syndrome. And and they're like, well, not those humans. You know, there's a tendency to fall back into their Darwinism, which is like not all humans are equal, which is really what Darwin said and why we did eugenics. And not every human has a right. Right. And so then it becomes really might makes right. If I've got the power, I make the mind. And that's what's going on now. So a lot of classical atheists are struggling, like Sam Harris and them, looking at the modern situation going like, whoa, 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 time out. And they're like, what? You, we got no grounds here. Like, we can do whatever we want. Every human's for himself, right? And so I think they, or they'll try to ground it in some kind of like, well, we all agree that we're all equal. And it's like, oh, okay, what happens when one group doesn't agree? Who, who, who arbitrates between those two and, um, and makes that? makes that case because you can't just leave them alone they have they're both humans and so there's this tension in human rights that's showing up because now they want to give it to animals 
I don't know. So that's, it never stays with humans. It either reduces what humans, like, that's why you get weirdos that are like, oh, I'm ready to save an ostrich egg or whatever, but I boarded my baby last week to get out here. You know, you're like, what is going on? It is, it is kind of uh, nuts in that regard where people are elevating, it seems like, in a lot of aspects of culture, elevating animals above humans, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, really, it's like, like all these... I am so offended that somebody would mistreat this animal. And I'm not really that bothered. When a human's getting a human. beat up or, yeah. You know, it really is kind of nuts. Well, and I've, I've watched people, my wife's gone to the dog park, and like the way you raise a child has mm. be, started to become like how you're supposed to treat your dog. So people get upset if we're like, want to discipline our dog and make sure our dog isn't like, doing something crazy or whatever and there's like no almost like you gotta let your dog do whatever it wants and you're just like wait a minute this is weird um yeah so it's and then people don't want to have kids but they're all i, I don't even want to get into how people think dogs and animals are the same as having children it, no. it's not so anyway it is not um okay here's a deep one um somebody wrote um i have a taboo to topic um i've been a christian for 23 years attended multiple churches, and have faced a lot of rejection, neglect, and abuse from Christians and leaders in some of these churches, and they made it not all branch. Uh, and this trauma has caused me to be socially awkward. How do I learn to trust people again? Well, That's kind of a very deep yeah. and loaded question. Yeah, I, I would say that um, first and foremost, finding a very good... Um, just kind of a, a counselor to deal with rejections really important. Um, being a person who is socially awkward and I just am that way. And now that I've had children, I realize, oh, that's just my genetics. The, um, the rejection is a deep seated, difficult thing to kind of overcome, but it's possible when you understand Christ, right? So um, I think somebody has to help work them through number one forgiveness, right? Um, even if they don't, ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is releasing the right to judge, releasing the right to hold on to your bitterness and what they've done to you. And um, trusting God is going to bring vengeance and justice. And then you can go on with your life. Uh, two, then deeply studying the concepts of the value that God gives you, being made in the image of God, being um, being that, it's, that your value is found at the cross, that he's given his life for yours and that that can't be changed that's that's locked in history and so it is literally unchangeable and so decouple value from uh people's opinions and stuff like that which takes a long time that's not an easy process either it's a lot of meditation memorization and then um so that those are a couple of things that i would really suggest as you work through that kind of that kind of trauma um do you supposed to reconcile with us? No, I wouldn't. I would wait for eternity, if if it was serious serious um, kind of abuse and stuff. So, and and I would think too, you know, and rejection to to some degree. I mean, to some degree, rejection is um, is interpretable, right? Because yeah. I could feel that you rejected me, but you didn't necessarily reject me. You just didn't respond the way I, that I, I you, want you yeah. to, right? And so that's not true rejection. Um, neglect, the same thing, you know. Um, 
there is neglect, but there's also an expectation of you to care for me in a unsustainable manner. And therefore, you know, I feel neglected yeah. when you're not neglecting me. So I do think we kind of have to weigh those things personally. Yeah, you have to examine to, your expectations you know, towards yeah. And do church. I have unrealistic expectations on someone? You know, do uh, um, have they committed to something and therefore they are, re, you know, reneging on their commitment or was I have an expectation that we had never committed to would mm-hmm. be another thing that I would, I would, you know, uh, from this questioner, I, I would process those types of things. Was it true neglect? Was it true rejection? Did they just not respond the way as you, in, you thought they should? Right. Yeah. I also think that there's an aspect to this that continues with like, um, not just your expectations, but like, look at, look around and ask yourself, um, where the other, where the other people who haven't rejected you are, um, you know, and who are those people and are you pouring into them and are you allowing them to give you what you need? Cause I think a lot of people are lonely and so they go to, uh, church figures or leaders and things to kind of fill the, um, the relational gap when really, you know, if everybody did that to every church leader, <laughs> you would, ha- you'd have a church leader quitting every, every day. Uh, and so it's really incumbent upon us to sit back down, take some, take some assessment of, well, where are my relationships at? And um, if that rejection is there, holding them back from building a, a closer knit group of people um, really suggest kind of giving yourself some experiments and try to and, and say, this is what I believe about this situation. They're going to reject me. But then give yourself an experiment like, OK, I'm going to pray about this and I'm going to step out and I'm going to say hi to somebody and invite them to coffee. And you're going to feel scared and I'm going to get rejected or whatnot. And yeah, it might happen. But if it doesn't, you know, you go back and you write about it and you just continue to process and grow as you overcome rejection. But a good, a good, a good, healthy Christian counselor should be able to help work through some of those things. And it shouldn't take you all your life. You should mm-hmm. be able to get some plan and get moving pretty, pretty quickly. And again, when it comes to forgiveness, too. And I mean, there is truly these things Um but also when it comes to forgiveness, one thing for me personally that helps me in the area of forgiveness, and I do believe true forgiveness is supernatural. You you need you need the Holy Spirit. Yeah. You need you need the Lord to prompt your heart to at least want to forgive at the beginning. You know. Mm-hmm. But but also analyzing the aspect of did somebody hurt me or did they harm me? You know? And if somebody hurts me, it's easier to forgive. Meaning they did something that offended me or hurt me, but it wasn't intentional. Or insulted me. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah, where harming me, they are purposely, you know. Out to get you. Out mm. to destroy me. Mm. You know, that makes it a little bit more difficult. But somebody that has hurt me makes it a little easier for me to let go of some of that pain as yeah, well. Yeah. So, I, that was kind of a heavy question. Um, all right, Romans 5, peace and hope. God's plan for next year for you, fears, and I have to give it to God. So sounds to me like um, what is God's plans for us for the next year? Uh, or And then uh, and then fears and how to give it to God. So yeah, I'm just anxiety gonna, over. Yeah, I'm just going to really dive more into the fear question because planning in the future and stuff, right? 
man has many plans in his mind, but it's the Lord's will that'll, that he'll accomplish kind of Proverbs. Um, and so when it comes to this idea of, yeah, you got to go through suffering to see character. That's what Romans 5, 3 through 5 is giving. The question about fear is this. Well, um, fear is about control. Fear is about um, having something that's not in my control that is stronger or threatening to me. And therefore, now I have to um, to I have to face it. And so sometimes it's the future. Sometimes it's an immediate circumstance. And the biblical answer is, yeah, you're supposed to fear, but you fear God first. Right. Fear, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that means that we understand who God is. We understand how powerful he is. We understand how just he is. We understand how right he is to condemn us. And that should lead us then to begging for mercy out of fear, which leads us to Jesus, which leads you to trust because God is great, powerful, and he's scary, but he loves us. And that's kind of Jesus' point. Fear him who can cast you into hell. And then he goes right into, but he knows the numbers of the hairs on your head. And so there's this like, God loves you. So you're fearful of him, but it leads you to his love. It doesn't lead you to his condemnation. And so we receive Christ. That being said, then you get back to fear of God leads to the trust of God. And then that trust of God allows you to get to know him. Love and seeing he's in control of things ultimately leads to fear of being cast out. And the way I, the way I did it last night with my kids, which is kind of funny, like I was like, and we're talking to one of my Adeline, she was just like, oh, I'm afraid of this. And I'm like, okay, well, why? What does that lead to? And she's like, this. And I'm like, well, what does that lead to? And she's like, this. And I'm like, and then I won't get good grades and then I won't go to college and then my life will be a mess and then Jesus will return. It's like every time, every time we went, I was like, and then Jesus will just, again, this like, you're like, oh yeah, I guess it's not that big of a deal if Jesus is going to come back. So kind of ends all that, like, why are we worrying about this? Why are we fearing it? Jesus is going to come back. Oh, done. Check. It's good. Yeah. And, and I, I know that there's statistic out there that says 80% of everything we worry about never comes to pass. Hmm. But, but also I remember doing a sermon a long time ago and, uh, and one of the questions I proposed in the sermon was, if if I told you right now with absolute certainty you're going to lose your job, you're going to lose your house, you're going to, you know, you're going to be homeless, you know, by Friday. But Monday, you're going to get a check for six million dollars. How worried or anxious would you be right. that Friday's coming? When you know that Monday's around the corner. That Jesus and, is coming back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, Jesus is coming back with a $6 million check, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Far more than that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but, but yeah, and, but, but the thing is, is, it is hard to get the bees out of your head when you're anxious or full of anxiety. Yeah. I mean, how do you just give that to God and move on? And is the scriptures really saying that? Like, don't even feel a little bit of anxiousness. Or well, you're in sin. Or... Be- anxiety is a modern term. It really means being concerned. It means to be overly concerned to where it's, you're obsessed with it. And so Jesus is like, don't do that. And his entire section of the Sermon on the Mount is like, that comes from not trusting that God loves you and has control, um, that he's going to provide for you. I mean, I was reading Psalm 78 today, and the Song of Asaph is like, the whole thing is about God provides and God provides and God provides. And then you guys all whine and complain that he's not going to provide. He's like, why aren't we learning? So there is a anxiety comes from trying to be in the future to control it and to to and to think that you have a control over it. 
And so what happens is you wind up not focusing on what God has given you right now. He only, he lives in the future. We don't, but he has you right here. There is a decision to be made right here. And he even, you're not even in charge of the results of your decision. That's God's job. And he loves you. Your job is to make a choice and to choose correctly or, you know, choose incorrectly and face the consequences. Right. I mean, really, that's how responsibility works. All right. Um, did God make human beings other than Adam and Eve? Well, in one way, he makes all human beings. Yes. Uh, but um, actually, the answer is no. Adam and Eve were the first human beings. He didn't make a second group. Uh, number one, we would believe that because he rests on the seventh day, which means he was done with his creative process. Hmm. Number two, he commanded humanity to multiply, not um, not for God to multiply humanity. Um, there are some people who want to argue that, like, just like he made the, fir- the first oxen, it was not just two and it was a whole bunch, that, oh, see, he didn't just, Adam and Eve are the, are the heads and he made a whole bunch of humans. That's where Cain's family. But that's not how the scriptures indicated, because then otherwise humanity wouldn't all be fallen and we would have different humanities Mm -hmm. and we would find ourselves in a situation in which Jesus would be the the, savior of some, but not others because of that, that oddity. So Jesus believed in a historical Adam. So I go with him. He's the one who rose from the dead. And at that point, I... I really think that there's not a real good argument for other humans. I know there's some people out there who want to argue for genetics and statistics that there's just populations couldn't have done it from two people. And I've read enough books to know that there's lots of ways to do this. And that's just bunk. There's, there's other ways to do it with a, um, with um, Adam and an Eve. And so in that scenario. And, uh, and, and you believe that the tower of Babel fell into that, from a cultural standpoint and wherever know, it was back there. Area. Yeah, it was, I mean, it's described as a ziggurat, but that doesn't mean it was, and who knows how far back in history it was. So. All right. Here's another one. Um, let me see. What does the Bible mean by the elect? God elected us to be his people through Christ before creation of the world. Ephesians four, one. Then doesn't that mean that he also decided not to choose others before the creation of the world? How do humans experience free will in light of God's sovereignty? So the classic Calvinist Arminian debate yeah. um, question here. And so Um there's a said Ephesians four one or is it one four? This is four one. So the this is not going to be answered quickly or easily uh, in, a, in a short amount of time because the word chosen, eclectos, is a very, um, is a very kind of, or echologomai in this case, it is a very broad terminology that comes out of Hebrew, out of the Israelite culture and the viewpoint of, and it can have a wide range from God chose a, a nation as a people and that your faithfulness as that nation determined whether you were in the chosen or out. Some people argue it that way. So it's like you're chosen in Christ. So in a sense that Christ was the chosen one. And therefore, if you are faithful in Christ, then you're part of the chosen. Um, some That's how some Arminians will view it. Um, and some other people who will say like, yeah, but and that doesn't include individuals. But they go, well, God knows. 
right? In fact, later, no, later question, we'll just hit that one too. There, there was actually a question of like, um, like I think it's the next one, right? Yeah, so, it yeah. is. If God knows what I am going to do five years from now, is he making me do it? Predestination. Right. So the same thing happens with this chosen and predestination conversation. Question is, if God knows who he is going to choose or who he chose, does that eliminate your choice? Classically, Christianity has always said no. Like nobody can eliminate really the choice because then you turn humans into robots. And that's not really what we mean. So most reformed people will work in a way of arguing, look, God, God made you as such a person that when he gave you the call of the gospel, it was so clear to you, you had to receive it because he empowered you to do so, right? So, and so in that case, yeah, God chose some to go to heaven and he empowered them and God didn't choose others. And so he just left them, but everybody was going to hell without God's work, right? So left alone, everybody's going to hell, but God chooses some and then says, okay, I empowered you. Now you're coming to heaven. The rest of you, I leave to condemn. Uh, that's really tough for people to swallow. Um, it makes logical sense, and a lot of theologians hold to that, and it's it's tough. The other one was, okay, there, there's this world that I've created, and humanity is going to fall. I'm certain of it, and I'm certain I'm bringing, I'm coming as you know, in Jesus, and I'm going to everyone who's going to be faithful to me. I'm certain of who they are. I'm certain that they will choose me, and but I'm not making them choose me. And so that's more of an Arminian perspective. And people go, wait, 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 how does that overcome, you know, the fallenness? And uh, they would argue that there is a grace, there is a effectual calling that comes to every human being and some reject it and some receive it. And so they actually believe it's a rejectable or receivable, unlike the Calvinists who would argue, oh, no, 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 it is only, it is an absolute unrejectable grace. You can't, you can't remove it. If it comes to you, you have you will take it there's no because it awakens you so it is a tightly difficult subject and um i'm not going to say that that's an easy one you have to do a lot of study um between the three positions that are kind of out there which is reformed and reformed has a whole bunch arminian arminianism has a whole bunch and then there's kind of this middle road group called the they they like to use the word molinist but that's a bad title basically they're 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 trying another route forward to keep choice free, but bound to your character and God being savior and man being the rejecter. And so I, I kind of like that idea more. I think it's very scriptural that we go to hell because mankind rejects God. So hell is all our doing and salvation is all God's doing. Mm. And when we think it in those terms, it really helps me get away from, well, then God's the one who's made me do bad or created me only for bad. Or, and then people go, well, he made the pots. And blood. it's like, yes, he knew what, who would be bad. He made them anyway. He loved, he, he created them anyway. And, but, and the other part is that I really want the gospel to be a true thing that comes to everybody. And then humanity needs to reject the gospel, not, mm -hmm. not, um, no, there was. And that's still the truth in, in all these different camps. So it's just it's just a really complicated scenario. And I, I do think part of the tension, too, you, you know, when you get into the debate, you know, of of the elect or whatever being predestined, you know, um, 
And so the Arminian position would be, well, yeah, God chose you because he knew you would choose him. And the Calvinists would say, no, he chose you. And therefore you responded, you know. And the Millennials would say, yeah, <laughs> God saw that you would choose him, but he chose to make you. Yeah. And therefore, yeah. it's God's choice and your choice at the same time. <laughs> yeah, but to me, the part of the tension that lies in both of those positions is you can't separate the two. Mm -mm. You can't separate foreknowledge from, you know, un, you know, from electing you either way. You can't go, okay, so God didn't know until I chose him. So it really is just, yeah. there is tension there that you're yeah. never going to resolve. Craig, Craig likes to say, uh, William Lane Craig likes to say, when it comes to foreknowledge, it's about God's certainty, not about God's determinacy right so otherwise god would have god becomes a necessary being in the sense that even his actions are necessary he can't do anything but what he knows he will do and he knows everything he'll ever do and so that's a logical problem for people because god's the freest being and so you're like wait how can god be free and yet he has to do exactly what he's knows he'll do it's like so because he's certain of what he will do but he's not um because he's certain of it it doesn't mean that he's determined by some force beyond himself to do what he has to do. Yeah, you know, and I know like, you know, the Calvinist position is the predetermination um, position. Parts of it, not and, all of them. And then, you know, and then one of the things I've heard them, you know, defend is when Jesus was talking about speaking in parables specifically so people didn't understand mm. the gospel and mm. respond to it, right? You know, what, what do you think about that scripture? I think that it fits deeply into the desire that Jesus was coming as a prophet who was uh, determined to give the people what they deserved and yet is a gracious God. And so there is a sense that he isn't, he, you, you read through the Old Testament and if you really want your sin, God's going to give it to you mm. and it's going to come out your nose. So watch it when God really gives you what you want, right? And so I think there's a sense where it's like, you really want me here? Okay, I'm here. But I'm going to be so here, you're going to be so ignorant of it because you are so hardened. Right. I'm not going to, you're going to have to work it. You're going to have to come to me. You, know, you have all the information you need. I don't need to give you anymore. So I, I think that they were accessible parables. They just weren't accessible to their hearts. So it's kind of interesting. And that is a rabbit hole we could go through. Oh, yeah, that take way too long. <laughs> all right. What happened to Joseph, Mary's husband? In the Bible. Well, we're not completely sure, but it definitely appears that he died sometime before Jesus began his ministry. So um, he was known. He had enough children. So, I mean, we know that he had four boys and, and how many ever girls. So Joseph um, most likely had died at some point in Jesus's uh, 30 years before he joined, jumped into the ministry stuff. We also know that because Mary had to be given over to John, mm. not you know, so. All right. Um, just a couple more questions here. Can a Christian manifest the influence of a demon? Okay. Yeah. So can they be demonized? So the answer there, a lot of, a lot of um, my professors that I had from Talbot would say, you cannot be possessed. God possesses you. There's no ownership by demons, but you can be demonized, which means that demons can influence you as you give them influence through sin, um, evil habits, uh, improper thinking. Uh, a lot of a lot of Christians, I think, baby Christians and others, are so influenced by the world that their mind they don't. There's no need for the devil to mess with them, because he's or the demons to mess with them, because they're already believing what the demons want them to. 
But um, the demonic is definitely able to influence us just as our sin remains in us and influences us. And the Holy Spirit is still present. And there's a war going on there. It's the old man and the new man. we got to put off the old man, put on the new man. It's the spirit versus the flesh. And it is the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And so those things are all there. But we have the power to overcome. We have the power to grow in sanctification. And it won't conquer or win. And therefore, any kind of demonic um, influences can be dealt with in the name of Christ. You just, you got to kind of dig out the false beliefs and, um, and, and work through it. So, and probably one of the deepest dive, you know, tomes of theology on this would probably be the screw tape letters, right? <laughs> That's a good, it is a good book. It, I, there are some good books on the subject. Um, uh, Unger did a whole book on the, that question of demonization and he's kind of the one who reset it. Um, Clinton Arnold, my professor at Talbot, he's also been very invested in this conversation and uh, yeah, um, Michael Heiser, who does the Naked Bible podcast, he he's he'll have some people on occasionally. They'll do that stuff. So, I mean, it's not an unknown subject of spiritual warfare and you know, exorcism and things like that. But in this case, again, we're not going back to classics like oh, we're possessed. That that's not the language of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. and the Screw Tape Letters is a fun read. It is a fun read. It is a fun read. All right, um, I think this is the last question. Um, well, actually, there's two more. How do we know if we can trust a person's experience of God if there is no way that we can affirm or deny it? Well, I don't think Jesus says that you can't affirm or deny somebody's um, trust in God. Uh, I think there's several things that are fruit. Uh, Jesus gives us four soils to examine. Uh, some people immediately reject. Some people go through major suffering after they receive what appears to receive Christ or they receive Christ and they, they walk away, they fall away. There are those then who receive Christ, grow up, but get choked out by the worries and cares of the world. And then there are those who trust Christ and produce fruit. Jesus says, then at least you need to examine the fruit. So what's the fruit? We know there's the fruit of the spirit. And so there should be a character that's forming in the person. I think there's also, that means there's the presence of the spirit. We know the spirit of God should convict someone of sin so if I don't see a conviction of known sin in a person, that it's an obvious known sin. So like somebody is, um, you know, messing around uh, outside, you know, with their girlfriend and they become a Christian and suddenly they're like, it's no big deal. It's like, you know, a, you, if I tell you it's a big deal, the spirit of God should resonate with you because you are now capable of understanding spiritual things and you should be convicted. Um, if that's not there, I, I question, I go like, oh, that's, that's, not, that's not good fruit because you should be bearing the Spirit's fruit, not just your fruit. It's not just being nice and having character. It's the Spirit's fruit. And so then the last thing is that you should persevere through suffering. That I, that's why he says don't put anybody into like the ministry or the pulpit until they've persevered through some suffering because they'll jump out the second it gets hard, and it gets hard. So, um, yeah, I think there is a way to step back and see genuine fruit and be relatively certain of a person's faith and salvation. Um, and if they're faking it, praise God, we got a God who knows. Mm. So he'll deal with them. We, we are not to run around being fruit inspectors. Like I, I, there's a lot of people out there trying to throw pastors and other people under because they say something. I mean, we are in the first generation where every word you're ever speaking is being recorded by humans. 
not by Jesus. You know, Jesus already recorded all that. So I just say, leave it to the Lord. Um, trust. I have to trust him for your salvation as much as I have to trust him for mine. And uh, as I see fruit and see God work, it's pretty obvious because, man, we tell each other. We love to share about it. We talk about it. We talk about what the Lord's teaching us. And I think that still blows my mind every day that I'm like, dude, you were really my brother. And a person's experience will never contradict the word of God. You know, yeah, or the character of yeah, God. I won't. So, um, all right. Last question. And uh, obviously we did this series during the Christmas break. So yep. who started Christmas presents? And is there a difference between Nazareth and Nazareth? Okay. So I'll do the Nazareth, Nazareth thing first. Nazareth apparently is some um, anime guy who's got magic powers. Um, is Nazareth is the place where Jesus was raised. So right. um, the second question on Christmas. So if you presents, want to know about Nazareth, talk to your children or grandchildren, yes, depending yes. on how old you are. Yeah, but not Nazareth. Okay. That's that's the actual biblical spot. So I just think people say them so closely, it's like, well, what is what? So um, the Christmas presents thing is interesting because it began actually not with Christmas. It began with um, the St. Nicholas Day. So St. Nicholas was originally, uh, they revered saints on the day of their death. And so his death day was December 6th. And so when, when Nicholas died, the church started celebrating him as a saint because he was an amazingly generous person. He was part of the Council of Nicaea. He was a bishop of the church, but he would go to people's homes and give them large sums of gifts in order to, for dowries and stuff like that. And so on St. Nicholas Day, it became popular to give gifts to each other, especially hanging stockings on in your chimney and stuff like that, where you would usually give an orange because it represented the little bag of money. So that's mm-hmm. a tradition. It kind of grows in Holland and in Europe through the Middle Ages until it kind of pulls together into Christmas. And so Father... St. Nicholas becomes Father Christmas, Santa Claus, which is actually St. Nicholas. It's a, he gets that name from the Dutch in the United States later because that's how they would say it, Santa Claus. And so um, St. Nicholas Day becomes welded with the, the Christ Mass on December 25th, and so presents started being given. They start getting put under trees by Martin Luther, who brought the tree inside, and put lights on it. And so the, the traditions just kind of grow on each other for thousands of years. Pretty cool stuff. All right. And if Moses told God to calm down, why didn't God just make him stop? Because <laughs> God is merciful and patient, and he likes to work with us. Yes. If he didn't, we would all be dead. Yeah. So, <laughs> right? So that that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you, guys. What, what good questions, man. That's... Some of those are really hard. I got entire books on them. So, yes. yes, yes. Some of them, like I said, you can answer them in a couple of words. Some of them, it's going to take a couple of discussions. Yeah. If anybody's really interested in some of their uh, some of these deeper questions, always want to recommend a, a few resources. There's a great resource that's currently just come out for all kinds of uh, questions pertaining to uh, just apologetics, which is like, how do I know Jesus? is who Jesus says he is, or all these things. And the first one's called Confronting Christianity. And what I like about this one is by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's a really good, just a short primer on all the different topics about Jesus. Another one is just to get yourself a good systematic theology of some kind and work through it, whether that's Grudem systematic theology or um, some kind of um, 
there's there's a bunch of them out there. Christ, just look up systematic theologies and you'll get all kinds. I know that Christian theology is out there by one of our local guys from CBU. Um, so there's a bunch of those. And I uh, just want to challenge you guys, dig deeper, keep, and you'll have great questions. I mean, every good question deserves a good answer, right? That's what the series is about. So. Is. All right. So hopefully we will uh, continue this and have fun with it and uh, see you guys around. And don't forget, if you've got questions, send them in. We'd love to talk about it. Yeah, that's at, where did they send them to? They send them to? Send them to Pastor Greg at, at obcc.church. There you go. All right. Thanks, guys. All have right. a great day. Bye.